Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really hot here in Phoenix. As I mentioned the other night, the big saguaro across the street from our, our community has collapsed. And I looked at it today, it's turning black, and it just, I know, I've never seen that before. I went out and watered ours. <laughs> I'm going to water it again because I'm not too sure how it will go. But you're in a pretty bleak landscape in your book here in eastern Nevada. Yeah, it's uh, high desert, so it's a little cooler than Vegas and here. Uh, not a lot sometimes in the summer, but uh, much more pleasant, I would say. Well, this isn't unusual. I mean, I'd like to think this is not the start of a trend, but rather an unusual summer, but we'll see. Anyway, um, our guest tonight is Bruce Borgos, and you can see that The Bitter Past here is his debut novel. Um, yay. And it's it's really an interesting story. Now, I have to tell you, Bruce, that although, although the sheriff is the main narrator, I really, I really like the Russian spy. I thought his voice was great, and he just kept pulling me through the story. Well, I'm, I'm glad you say that, because originally, in my, in my earlier drafts, I had those sections of the book that dealt with the past, really in the 1950s. Um, I had much more of that. And then, as you know how editors work, we, we ended Especially up, your editor. We, we whittled that down over yeah. time, and he kept saying... Uh, I know you like it, but we got to stay in the present more. So we kept cutting a little bit, but he made the book so much better. Well, he does. The editor we're referring to is my longtime friend, Keith Kayla, who I'm happy to say was originally a bookseller before in Texas, before he became a senior editor. Maybe I can't remember. He keeps rising in the ranks at Minotaur Books, which is the mystery um, arm of St. Martin's Press. And Keith and I have collaborated for forever. Yeah. So I do know that he is terrific on pacing and other things, and you're very lucky to have him. I am. I feel very lucky. Indeed. So what we have here, we're in 1957, which, depressingly, I was, how old was I in 1957? 17. <gasps> it's just, I hate the fact that my life has turned into history, which I complain about a lot while we're here at the store, but that's a penalty for living so long. Um, and what I realize increasingly as this kind of thing happens is that I didn't know anything about what was happening in the desert of eastern Nevada and the whole atomic testing program in 1957. It's astonishing how little, when you're, you know, a kid living along, how, how maybe today everybody's much more informed because of the internet, you know, and all the rest of it. But then I've seen kids, so... My husband was really shocked on our way home from Santa Fe. We stopped at a McDonald's um, for a Coke and, you know, the usual facilities and so forth. And Rob went up to buy a $2 bottle of something, and he had cash. And not only did the kid know how to make the change or count it, but the really frightening part was he didn't know what any of the coins were. And somebody had to come out from the back and tell him how to make 39 cents, that he had to have a quarter and a dime. And for a penny, Rob was just like completely flabbergasted by the whole thing. And so, you know, I do wonder how much we're, as we become so digital, you know, how much, sure. how much is lost, right? Yeah. And, and I was going to say, don't feel bad, Barbara, about not having a great 
or vast knowledge of what happened out there in the 1950s, I was surprised how much, and, and growing up predominantly in Las Vegas, which is just, you know, 60 or 70 miles south of that area, I was surprised how much stuff I didn't know. I mean, and, and just about everybody that I know there has had family and friends work out there at some point over the last five or six decades. But in my research, I just uncovered a bunch of stuff that I was, well, first of all, a lot of it out there that has happened was not heavily advertised. Some of it's only recently declassified. Right. So, but it was, it was a, a, a great learning process for me just to, to stumble onto some of that stuff. And your timing with Barbie, yeah. with Barbie. <laughs> I Hiver. planned that. Uh, the Barbie Hiver thing. I just, <laughs> I kept thinking that Bruce could never have published his book at a more fortuitous oh, moment. Gosh. And when the Robert Oppenheimer documentary has come along and because some of the things that, you know, the, the themes and so forth in that documentary are true, are true in your book. And one of the senior scientists you point out several times about um, the lack of humanity, you know, that, that the, the grip of the science discounted any, any human cost, not that they knew what it was. I mean, Marie Curie, you know, died um, of radiation poisoning because when she was developing x-rays on the whole bit, nobody knew how dangerous it was. And a lot of people that were involved in early research with radioactive stuff or whatever, you know, died because nobody understood about, you know, now if you go in for an x-ray, they plaster you with, you know, lead aprons and, and all the rest of it. But but they didn't, nobody knew about that kind of stuff. So in a way, you know, your, your scientist, he's experimenting with this, you know, edgy science that Oppenheimer and destructive science without any real idea of what it might actually cost people. Yeah, and I think, to your point, during that time, we were very much in this state of mind that we were in a war with the Soviet Union. It was Cold War, but it was war. Well, it was McCarthy, too. Right. I mean, you were right, right in the middle of the Red Scare. Absolutely. And there was an attitude, really a much different attitude than you'd, you'd find today, I think, uh, in that a lot of people, especially those people who lived in the area, a lot of the people who lived downwind of those atomic blasts, uh, were very patriotic people, actually continue to be very patriotic people. And some of those people went through a lot of hard times because of the vicinity in which they lived. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the science was going full steam and it was not to be stopped. No, well, it was, you know, it was a huge defense operation. Betty Webb, a local author, wrote a, a very good book called um, Desert Redemption about a movie that was filmed, a real movie that was filmed in um, this area. Right. And it was John Wayne and Susan Hayward. I can't remember the rest of the The cast. Conqueror. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and a lot of Native Americans in the cast so far. Anyway, all the stars died of, of cancer. Um engendered by, you know, well, John Wayne was a heavy smoker, so we can't right. probably right. give it all to the <laughs> radiation. But nonetheless, Betty Betty did a lot of research and showed that a great number of people that were involved in the film in that area all came down with, with cancer, and yeah. radiation was very likely 
a cause. So, you know, it wasn't even just about the defense industry or, you know, testing bombs at all. Some of it was about, you know, making a movie. That... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that area that they filmed the movie in, it's essentially southern Utah, um, was in radioactive terms very hot for a very long time. So there continues to be um, cancers that spring up. Did, now, you, did you see the legislation that has expanded the coverage for people yeah. that are afraid? I don't know if any of you noticed it, but it's been um, a lot of headlines in the news that um, the coverage for people damaged by all the downwinding things has been greatly extended by the government. Yeah, it's spread out quite a bit. Um, it used to be confined to a, a smaller area and a smaller group of people. but. Right. But that radiation spread over time, over years, really all over the world, but obviously predominantly in, in the Western United States. Yeah, well, but I mean, that's been true of natural disasters, too. The right. Jim Rollins book that is coming our way talks about the giant explosion in Indonesia in the middle of the night and all the stuff that came out of the volcano drifted all the way across the world and caused, you know, the same kind of right. damage, all kinds. So it isn't just... Us blowing things right. up as oh, the yeah. world blowing itself up, you know, yeah. that has a lot to do with it. Well, anyway, we haven't really talked about the plot. So you're bridging 1957, and is it is it quite contemporary? It's like, a what, maybe a 60-year gap? It's a 60-year gap. So it's a dual timeline story, and it starts with the sheriff, the current sheriff of Lincoln County, um, a man by the name of Porter Beck, who starts his day uh, at a crime scene, which this kind of crime doesn't happen much in rural Nevada. And it's the brutal murder of a retired FBI agent. And that investigation leads him back to really the hunt for a KGB agent who may or may not have infiltrated the Nevada test site during the 1950s. And then comes the question of whether or not that spy might still be alive because there appear to be other people looking for him. So that's kind of how the two storylines start out and eventually come back together later in the I book. Know. Alas, we can't talk about it because yeah. um, <laughs> it really it's really interesting how it all works out. There is I'm really bored with this word, but there actually is a great twist um, towards, you know, at the end of the novel, which we can't discuss. But um, I, I did think that, for one thing, we know that Russia planted all kinds of sleeper agents. So that's what you're really talking about. You're talking about a young man who was taken from prison, right? In well, not Russia. from prison. Not from prison. Well, he but... was sent to Lubyanka for training, if I remember. Well, right. which is where the KGB had their headquarters. Okay. Right. Yeah. Anyway, what was he, an orphan or something? Well, he was an orphan because of the war, because right. he'd lost his family to the Nazis. Right. Yeah. So anyway, he was picked up and sent through a training program and then planted here right. in the United States. Right. And clearly other people were also um, here. So he has a particular mission that unfolds in his voice, in his narration, mm -hmm. which I guess you could describe a little without a spoiler. Yeah, so that, that section of the book, the book which takes, takes place in the past, um, revolves around that man who was very young at the time and is really in his mid-20s and was sent to the U.S. because he had some knowledge of physics 
And the Soviets very much wanted to know what was going on, not only at places like Los Alamos in New Mexico, um, and some very real events there that most of us have heard about, but also out in the Nevada desert where we were testing all of those new and, and great atomic weapons. So his job is to get in, find out as much as he can, and report back. Um, and it's, it's a very difficult place to get into, which is why the government picked that area of Nevada, because it was so out of the way that they could make it a very secret place that nobody would know about, and the security was out of this world. Very tough to get into, even harder, as it turns out, to get out of. Well, it was really like Oak Ridge and Los Alamos, which right. were secret communities built during the war that nobody knew about, so they, by necessity, had to be remote right. and lightly populated. And um, when I moved to Oak Ridge in 1965, the, the pillboxes were still oh, yeah. at the sides of the road. When you drove towards the town from Knoxville, you know, they were they were all still there. You could imagine, you know, mm -hmm. guns bristling out and the whole bit. Right. So, you know, Eastern Nevada, I mean, basically we're creating our own Chernobyl is what we're doing um, yeah. with all this testing. But, you know, but nobody knew that. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of data back then. So all of these atomic explosions, and again, back in the 1950s, we're talking about above ground, atmospheric explosions, not underground, which happened later in the 60s and 70s. Okay. So... Uh, literally between like 1951 and 1960, there were more than a hundred atomic weapons that were detonated above ground. So we didn't know a lot about what the effects, and especially long-term effects of the exposure to radiation were, but we know now. So anyway, we have his story and as it moves along, he has to make some difficult choices. But in the present, we start out with, I have to say, that was a particularly brutal murder. I almost <laughs> didn't go on. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because originally... I'm surprised Keith let you be quite that brutal. Well, you'll be happy to know that um, they made it uh, actually a little bit harsher than I originally wrote it. Really? Just to make it that, that first chapter be so impactful. And really, it's not even that first chapter. It's really like the first two pages. So it's pretty gruesome, but there's a reason that it's gruesome. Right. Well, when I wrote it up, I said, just move past that yeah. <laughs> end of the story. Right. You know, for those of you who think that you're suddenly reading Silence of the Lambs, you're really not. Um, but yeah, it is. And part of the reason it's so brutal is that the guy is so disfigured. Yeah. So uh, again, without giving too much away, it... Uh, it just kind of starts out that way. And again, there's a good reason for that type of killing. And it really launches the sheriff into his investigation. The sheriff has a very interesting background in that he's just recently returned to Lincoln County about three years earlier and taken over the job that his dad had for several decades as the sheriff. But his background is in really army intelligence and his specialty was Russia. So he spent time in Moscow and in that part of the world. Wasn't he in Afghanistan too? Yes, he yeah. was in lots of different places, but he was what they call a foreign area officer in the army, which is a specialist in a particular geography or country. So he has some interesting background. And when he sees the, the murder scene, he sees some things that 
kind of take him back in his mind to his time in the Army, and he's very curious about that. And uh, again, this is very out of the way for something like that to happen in rural Nevada. Right. So, I mean, that's the setup, and these stories move along a track. Um, and you hear from Sheriff Beck, and then you hear from Peter. Is that his name? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Freddie. In Fred. the past, you mean? Right. Yeah, Freddie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and you, you wonder as you're reading it how they're ever going to merge. But yeah. they do. <laughs> Amazingly, they do. It's really a very well thought out, I thought, um, an interesting story. I'm not sure that you're contemplating another case for Sheriff Beck after this one, or are you? Keith has done that for me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he, he contemplated it early. So uh, there is at least one more. Porterback novel coming out, hopefully more than that. Um, so yeah, and that hopefully will be out next year. Great. I mean, it could go either way. It could have been the, his story. Right. And oh, that absolutely. Was it. Yeah, it could have been yeah. just a standalone. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But but he's really he's an interesting character. I do think he had some occasionally lame dialogue, or possibly even in the Me Too area. A well, little, a you, little you wouldn't annoying. be the first to say that. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, but keep in mind, that's his inner dialogue. He's not saying those things out loud. Oh, yes, he does a couple <laughs> of times. I was surprised some woman uh, didn't clock him. Uh, <laughs> oh, I really was. Well, he, I think he mellows later in the story. Right. Yeah, That'll be great. Yeah, I'm just getting the, you know, flaws out of the way earlier. <laughs> As I said, I liked it so well. It's our first Mystery Club pick, so I don't want you to think I've invited Bruce here just to trash his book. That's no, that's, that's and that's good feedback. Yeah, uh, but you know, mm -hmm. I, it, this is a book where I loved it in spite of uh -huh. until I really got into it, and then after that, you know, it just rocketed along. Right. And as I said, I was so entranced with the with the with the Russian. Um, I mean, I like them both, but I I thought. I thought his development through the book and um, the moral dilemmas that he found himself in and the actions that he had to take, although he was so scared, um, and he really was, he was terrified, um, were just remarkable. Yeah, and it's, uh, it, you know, that um, coincidence of having Oppenheimer released uh, basically at the same <laughs> time as my book. You, you, If you've seen the movie, you get this great sense. They do a great job of explaining how he was so conflicted by developing the first atomic bomb um, and how that weighed on him really for the rest of his life. So and I, so I, I tried to use that. I, I had no idea at the time that the movie was going to come. I knew it was coming, but I didn't know it was going to come at the same time. Yeah. But so I, I tried to insert some of that conflict in the story because I thought that was a very real thing. It was a real thing. Now, one of the one of the great strengths of this book is the landscape. Um, I think that you wrote really wonderfully well about the Western landscape and well, the Eastern Nevada Western landscape yeah. as it all happens. But also, off on the side, is Las Vegas. And right. in 1957, it was you know, if you know anything about the history of Phoenix, you know that some of the mobsters from Vegas and Phoenix went back and forth, right, Patrick? Hung out at Durant's which is still going, I know. Although I think they've become criminal because the last time I ate at Durant's, the lamb chops were $95 a la carte. I was so shocked. I know, right. And and also they start serving dinner on Sunday at three in the afternoon. Wow. So it's a relic. 
I know yeah. it's a real yeah. it's a real relic. But anyway, there was um, some of the Chicago outfit, the whole bit, you know, right. the Phoenix, Las Vegas, because Vegas was kind of designed. Patrick, you know more about this than I do. I feel sure. But wasn't Vegas kind of designed by the you know the mob and whatever it is to it you know to remember John Talton wrote about it so well in in one of his books. But at the time you're writing about it was what around forty thousand people. Yeah, or something? forty forty five thousand yeah. people at that time in the 1950s. A very small place by today's standards, and and now, didn't really have any glitz. No, no. I mean, it had started to, and again, a lot of that was mob influence mm -hmm. that brought that to Vegas. I don't know what Vegas would have been without organized crime, quite honestly. Um, but well, no, it was a tool yeah. to a great degree for right. organized crime. But I can remember going there when I was in college, so it would have been almost the time you're talking about. And mm -hmm. you know, it was like there was there was no high rise casino, there was none of the glamour or anything. It was, you know, little kind of almost Adobe. You know how those right. 1950 motels looked in the whole bit. The casinos were really tacky, and there was like a little slot machine at your table in the dinette, and you could, you know, order your hamburger and put nickels in the slot while you were there, and it was really tacky. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it was like that for a long time. <laughs> it was. But there it sits over there, yeah. um, relatively close, but not downwind, because Vegas is west. Well, Vegas, all this was Vegas is south. South and west? Yeah, well, south and, and depending on where you are on the test site, maybe a little bit east. But, uh, um, but the prevailing winds did yeah, not take so it all over the, Vegas. The people who s supposedly didn't know too much about the effects of radiation exposure were very careful not to do a, what they called a shot or a detonation when the winds were blowing towards Las Vegas. Southern Utah was fair game, uh, but Vegas was not. So they waited until the winds predominantly blew eastward toward Utah, and then they would do them. So, Which is true. Somebody pointed out to me recently that if Putin decides to go nuclear, he needs to remember that the wind direction is east <laughs> over Russia. It is not west over Europe, <laughs> and, you know, which I, it, made, it, it just makes sense right. when you think about it. But, you know, is he really willing to nuke his own people? And yeah. who knows, you know, but yeah. um, but it is true that you do have to remember the direction that stuff flows. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Right. So what kind of feedback have you had from people in Nevada? Well, you, you know, I don't know. I mean, outside of friends and family, uh, I you know, I've, I've talked to a few people. I've done a couple of signings up there. So I think generally speaking, the... the the feedback is very good, uh, as it has been just about everywhere else so far, which is great. So a Western Soviet spy story. This is a combination you would not normally run into. Actually, right. I'm not sure I've ever read anything that combines the different elements of this story before, which is wonderful. I love it when something is original. And I, that's what I was shooting for, so that that's good. <laughs> you did. So what's your own background coming towards publication? Don't I remember that you maybe had a couple of self-published things out there? Yes. I uh, self-published uh, two novels initially starting in 2016 and then 2018. And then and that was kind of a proof of concept thing for me. I wanted to see, do, you know, do I have what it takes to be able to write a book? And I was always a voracious reader as I think most authors are. 
And I, you know, there was just a time, even, you know, um, years and years ago that I thought I could probably do this. If I had the time, I could do it. And eventually I sat down and started to do it. And then after I did those first two novels, I thought, you know, I, I would like to try to get traditionally published. And that's a whole different road uh, to go down. And it's a, it's a longer road and it's, it's mined with all these horrible explosive things that could happen to you along the way, but it's well worth it. And uh, I, I was so, and continue to be so thankful for everybody I have working for me on my team at Minotaur because it's it's literally is a team of people and and to to publish a book and and make it successful it really takes a community to do that i'm going to read you the last line of the acknowledgement because i loved it that's what i picked up here my greatest thanks go to pam burgos my wife and oldest friend when i told you in the second grade that this was going to happen you didn't believe me did you i love that so you've known your wife since the second grade? I or have. Or possibly first grade? Yeah, she's in the fourth grade now. No. Um, yeah, I've known her since the second grade. She's actually outside of my direct family, the person I've known the longest. So um, that's about 57 years now I've known her. You remind me of Stephen J. Cannell, whose wife was the woman that he dated in the eighth grade. Do you remember <laughs> that, Patrick? That, yeah, and I yeah. always thought, you know, for... For Stephen J. Cannell, I thought that was a particularly because Hollywood and all the rest of it, you know, and here he was still married, you right. know, until he died to the woman that he dated in the eighth grade. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So very similar. Yeah. Well, so is she pleased that you finally achieved your dream? She is. She's a huge supporter. I mean, I couldn't do anything without her, probably. Um, yeah, I'd be lost. Um, but she also keeps me very grounded. So when I my head gets a little too big, she's very good at popping that balloon and bringing me right back down. <laughs> so do you have any military experience yourself? I didn't, but my dad was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And then uh, uh, a number of people that I use to uh, really as beta readers on my book and to help me with research and things have extensive military experience. So I really relied on them a lot. And I'm assuming you don't. You're not actually a physicist. I'm not, but I play one on TV. No, <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm just very interested in all that stuff. I mean, the whole atomic age really uh, was something that I had always had an interest in as a history buff. And really, after I went down to the Atomic Museum in Las Vegas, which is which was nice to have there and very convenient. They really helped me with a lot of my research, turned me on to a lot of things that I wasn't aware of about that time. And uh, yeah, so I became an expert very quickly. <laughs> so the 50s were a really interesting time. I mean, aside from the horrors of the Red Scare and all, and Jake Tapper from CNN, I've been mm -hmm. fortunate enough to do his book lunches, the last two books. Um, his second book in the series, because the most recent one is in the 1970s, is in the 50s, and it is in Palm Springs with the Rat Pack. Mm. And, you know, all those Hollywood characters and so forth, he really brings them to... We had a similar discussion about right. how are you turning my life into fiction. But, right. Um, and we counted out... He was born in 1977, so he doesn't Oh, he's know just a youngster. Any, right. He doesn't know any of it yeah. <laughs> firsthand. But right. um, what I'm seeing is that the bar for historical fiction... When I opened the store... 
1989, yes. basically the 1920s was where it cut off. And everything after 1920s was kind of more contemporary fiction. If it was the 20s, it was historical. And, and people weren't even that interested in the 20s. It didn't seem remote enough. Mm -hmm. But now the bar is advanced, and really the 1970s are where, because that's 50 years, the 1970s are now where right. fiction can become historical. So think about Sue Grafton, who was stuck in the 1980s. You know, when she died, Kinsey had turned into historical fiction. It really had. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, yep. it, I mean, I, I think 50 years is, is a good kind of a break, you know, where where things um, are remote enough and we've changed enough. Right. Think of all the stuff that didn't even exist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Your story could never have worked in an age of cell phones and, you right. know, in the, all kinds of stuff. I yep. mean, it could only have worked in yeah. a time when you could truly be isolated. Yeah, and you have to no be... no communication. Right, and you have to be very cognizant of that when you're writing, you know, that far back in the past. Because it's so easy to slip up and say something that, as a matter of fact, um, one or two of the folks who were editing my book came back and said, well, you, you know, that wasn't in existence then, you know, or this didn't happen at that point. And I, as careful as I am with my research, I was certain that they were wrong, but they weren't. <laughs> That's like a Victorian novel when they tell you to take two aspirin, which actually weren't invented until the 1920s. Right. You know, so um, it it is yes. very easy. I used to edit a lot of historical fiction, and even with verbs, you had to be really yeah. careful. Like you couldn't say "entrained," for example, because right. you know, in the Roman Empire, there weren't any trains. Yeah, I remember looking up "concrete" because I was convinced that that was not a satisfactory Roman term, but it turns out the Romans actually invented concrete, so it was okay. Oh. So you can learn a lot, you know, just trying to, um, not just nouns and not right. just stuff, but you have to really watch your verbs. Yeah, language on the whole is really a big thing that you have to watch with any type of historical fiction. There were a number of incidents where I, you know, I'm like anybody, I'm going back and Googling, trying to find the origin of some words. And in some cases in my book, it's profanity, you know, people cussing each other. And then again, it was a situation where some of the words I used, other people found out that that hadn't come into existence yet or wasn't widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of profanity. Yeah. No, but... Yeah. I've said this before. You would have loved my Russian professor at Stanford because his weekend gig was going down to the army base in Monterey to the army language school and oh. teaching Russian profanity. And the reason he did it was that, credibly speaking, you couldn't send our, our sleeper agents into Russia if they couldn't swear. In Russia, they right. were going to be outed in a heartbeat. Right. And But the problem was that he was a white Russian who escaped from Vladivostok at the end of the revolution. So his knowledge of current Russian profanity in the 1950s wasn't all that current. I mean, it was better yeah. than nothing. But, you know, I'm sure that the, ling you know, the lingo had moved on quite right. a lot. Yeah. But, you know, that you, you don't have, what's his name, pretty... Mm -hmm. is not exposing himself because he's actually speaking in English. But right. um, yeah. it would have been interesting if he tried to swear. Yeah, and I didn't have him do that. But uh, I, too, had a Russian professor in college. And uh, 
I took two years of the Russian language. This is a bear, by the way. Which will, and again, from a rule standpoint, the Russian language is not overly complicated. It's not half as complicated as English. Right. But pronunciation is absolutely brutal. And we started our uh, two years of Russian with about 35 people in the class. And by the end of the first semester, there were three of us left. That's how brutal it was. So for the next year and a half, every third question was yours. Nowhere to hide in the back of the room, you know. So I hate declensions. Yeah. I was never good at declensions, <laughs> not in Latin, not in German, and not in Russian. I don't think that way. But um, yeah, actually, the hardest part about Russian is not the the Russian the the Cyrillic alphabet characters no. that are new. It's the fact that the characters that you know are different. Right. So an M is a T, for example, and an S is a C, and a V is a B, and so right. you have to unlearn the yeah. what you what you know for. Um, English and, you know, translate it to Russian. So right. it can be, but um, some of it is taken from Greek. So my husband who took classical Greek in college can actually read Russian faster than I can because oh. the symbols are more familiar to him. Yeah. But he has no idea what it means. So <laughs> there we are. Right. So questions from all of you. We probably horsed around here. We can't tell you much about this book without ruining it for sure. you. Sure. But I have no idea how people fly by the seat of their pants when they write. I, I, I guess it's a thing, um, but I could never do that. I am a, just this intense plotter. So before I even write the first word of the first draft, I have done this massive, extensive outline. Um, I've laid out all the chapters to the best of my ability at the time. I think I know everything that's going to happen in the book. Uh, and if I didn't do it that way, I would go mad. Yeah, so that's my process. But it, for me, it makes it much easier to write because then when I sit down to do that every day, I just start typing away. And, and early on, a lot of that is garbage and I won't keep it. But at least I know where I'm going. I can't imagine trying to do that without knowing where I'm going, but for some people that works very well. You know, I try to do four to five hours a day, so I'm usually done by early to mid-afternoon, and that's kind of my time. But I can write anywhere at any time if I'm given that solitude. <laughs> Question? Yeah, uh, that does happen. So occasionally, despite my extensive planning um, and all the note cards I have and the software that I use for this and everything laid out from A to Z, um, I might be, you know, somewhere in the story and I'm, I'm writing a particular part and I realize it's just not going to work the way I laid it out. And a lot of things spring to mind then. And most of the time, they're things that make more sense, ultimately. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you, you lay out, you know, you try to, at least I try to, lay out well ahead of time who my characters are and what they would do uh, in given situations and, you know, what their background is. So I have a sense of what kind of person they are. And then, but 
you know, halfway through the novel, I might get to a point where however I've written this isn't lining up with, you know, what I have on these note cards over here about this character. But it might be a better way to go. So, but that's okay. Yeah, it works. Anyone else? Well, we know Barbara wanted more of the Russians. Let's look at taking more of the Russians. <laughs> was there anything that killed you that you had to take out? You know, that's really deep for a lot of publishers. You know, Christina, that's a great question. I I really didn't struggle with that because I had been using a a private editor first before I actually sold the novel. And she helped me kind of unmarry myself to some of the things that I had in there and helped me really clean it up. And then when the folks at Minotaur got a hold of it, um, we went through that whole process again with Keith. And um, there were areas, especially like I mentioned, areas in the past sections of the book that I was, I felt very strongly about. But predominantly that was because I had done all this research and I wanted to tell everybody about it. And I wanted to over-explain it because I had put in the time and I wanted everybody to know how, how important all of this stuff was. But I'm not the guy paying the bill for the book either. So I'm not, I'm not the one making that investment in, in printing this. So I understand the economics of it, and it is a business. And at the same time, the, their folks made the book better. They made it tighter. And, and when I took those things out that they suggested, or I moved a few things around, um, in the end, I was happy to do it. I, I thought I might be a little apprehensive, but once I did it, I was fine with it. And maybe since there's going to be another one, you could use some of it in another book. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly always possible. Maybe it's yeah. not all just, you right. know, gone not, away. Nothing is wasted. No, which is <laughs> which is a very good thing. So yeah. what about you, Christina? Because you're we're going to be setting Christina's publication date for her first novel for next March pretty soon, which is wonderful. So what? how do you feel about that process? Because you're in the same company, and... Um, they undoubtedly had. You know, there's people, a lot of people will walk in and say, oh, my God, your feelings are going to be hurt. Right. First off, when you get your editorial letter, you're going to be really mad and then really hurt. And so don't say anything to anybody. Don't say anything to anybody. And I was like, this is it? Like, I thought it was going to be. I, And not that, trust me, I did work. <laughs> not like this was a, right. some A-plus thing. But I was so ready to just feel horribly devastated. And I wasn't. I was so grateful for it. Right. Well, that's great. I was really grateful. Right. Yeah, of course. I said to you, because you're your editor, and you made me think of your editor. Sorry. Well, first, I think you should um, give Minotaur kudos and say they planned this around the movie release. I do think you should yeah. somehow work that in. Well, he, he probably did. He just hasn't told me. <laughs> um, so... Tell me about your actual launch because you did it in an unusual sort of place. Not to take away from the poison pen at all. But no, no, no. Talk this about isn't yeah. the book launch. The book has been out for a while. Um, so have you have you all read this yet? I thought maybe you might have. Yeah, so um, I actually did the book launch. I had actually done a couple of signings in uh, the Southern California area. And then I came back to Vegas, which is where I live, and where I kind of 
started this whole journey. And I, I asked the folks at the Atomic Museum if they would be willing to host that for me because they had been so integral to the, the entire story and really helped me on the research end of things. And they were so accommodating and so nice and didn't charge me for the space. That is impressive. That was, it was something. And then they told me later on, they said, you're the last person that we're giving this to for free. <laughs> um, but it was marvelous. And again, you know, with that great coincidence or not of the movie coming out at the same time, because they had just done a um, an event with Oppenheimer's daughter. Yeah. And the Atomic Museum in Vegas is an affiliate of the Smithsonian. So they get all these great guests and events going on all the time. So it was a kind of a peculiar place. It wasn't a bookstore per se, but it was a great place to kind of kick it off formally. Well, I think, I think book events can be held anywhere. Sure. You know, yeah. if you're in Europe, they often have them in churches um, because, you know, they're set up for audiences and all the rest of it. Yep. So, you know, I think that's a perfect place to be doing it. It, it was wonderful. Yeah. Anybody else? Patrick, are there any online there, questions? There are a couple questions, yeah. Um, let's see. Bruce, would you explain what a shot was and what the criteria were? Yeah, again, um, the vernacular that they typically used out at the test site when they were going to explode something was a shot. They wouldn't call it an explosion or we're going to do this detonation. All of those things are the same. But they called it a shot, like they were like, you know, setting something off. Um, and again, the criteria, the predominant one was weather. It was wind, it was anything else that might be going on weather-wise. But again, as long as the wind was blowing pretty much to the east, then generally that was a good time to set that thing off. <laughs> one of our regulars, uh, viewers, Robin, um, she says, my grandpa was an iron worker at the test site for many years huh. uh, after the tests shifted to underground versus above ground. Um, she says, we lived in Indian Springs, which is halfway between the test site and Vegas. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody was asking if, uh, if the grandpa you know, got radiation, and he ultimately did. You know, he did got cancer related to that. Right. Um, yeah, not, yeah. Un not uncommon at all. Right. Here's a question. Um, have you ever been in Area 51? So, no, um, because they don't let you in there. Um, it's still, uh, as, you, as you know, from all the UFO stuff, and, you know, supposedly we're keeping aliens and alien spacecraft out there. And I, for all I know, it's true. I, I don't know, because it's that tightly secured. And interestingly, though, Area 51 is entirely located within the confines of Lincoln County. But even the people in, you know, like the sheriff of Lincoln County, you can't go in there. So, uh, because there are guys with machine guns in that place. Now, is it true what they kind of, they say about, you know, a lot of the drone, drones are operated from deep within underground bunkers and that part of Well, they don't, Nevada. they don't need to operate drones from in a place of secrecy really anymore. There's actually an Air Force Base out at Indian Springs called Creech Air Force Base. And it is one of the bases that we have in the U.S. that has the predominant mission of uh, 
flying these drones or UAV craft. And in some cases, they're remotely piloting them from that area in Nevada, and they, they're flying them in Afghanistan or somewhere else in the Middle East. So the pilot's actually sitting in a trailer in Indian Springs. It's all Game Boy training. It is. But you know what? That's also true for orthopedic surgery. Um, is that the, because orthopedic surgery is now done um, basically with, you know, ro be AI robotically <laughs> and so forth. That right. um, years ago when I had a, um, a little resection because I had a diverticular spot in my intestine that had to be cut out, and I was given a choice at Mayo whether I would have a traditional abdominal with an older doctor or whether the new young woman doctor could use the um, the mm -hmm. new technique, and I thought I will try her because I know having you know the muscle. But it turned out that a lot of the older surgeons were retiring because they didn't grow up, you know, with game consoles and so forth, and so they they just weren't comfortable operating that way. And I'm right. sure that the drone people, you know, it's very similar. But what's astonishing to me is that the signals will, you know, will right. travel that far. But then if you look at the, the stuff happening in space yeah. and you recognize we sent something out in space. When was it? Rob was telling me years ago and it's still out there and it's moving out. And it's like, you know, even more billions of whatever it is out there. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's astonishing the size of these little guys that they put up there and all. And then they just yep. follow yeah. their we'll trajectory. Relay all these things off satellites, bounce them all over the world and allow us to do those things. So... It's a crazy world out there in the Nevada desert, and again, still very secretive for the most part. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. one of the one of the really great features of your book, as I said, is how the landscape and the geography mm -hmm. really determine so much of the action in the story. They do. It really, I mean, it really is a western, you know, yeah. which is which is so cool. And then, as I say, it's a Soviet spy drama. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Got a big endorsement from Craig Johnson, who loves this kind of thing. That. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Did you have something else? Oh, Christina, you're back. So you mentioned um, a couple of self-published before. Were they also in the same sort of setting or different? My first novel takes place in northern Nevada, um, and it is kind of the same kind of setting, though. It's, it, it's basically about a, uh, a real-life event, which was and continues to be uh, kind of this ongoing war between the federal government and cattle ranchers over grazing land. Um, so a lot of the same kind of setting. My second novel takes place for the most part in Africa, in South Sudan during their civil war there. So very different books, very different genres really. Um, but yeah, just the one in, in Nevada. One more writing process question. So you plot a lot mm -hmm. and, and you've planned before you actually start writing are you writing through with like the one point of view all the way to the end or are you juggling back and forth how do you do that yeah so in in this book in the bitter past um my i, I as barbara said i really have two different narrators uh, in the present the narrator is the sheriff um and he's uh he says some inappropriate things at times <laughs> thinks inappropriate things quite often. Um, but, uh, and then in the past section, the, the this person, Freddie, who is the, it's of course the, not his real name, um, the Russian, he's recounting 
uh, in real time, in, in, the, in the present time that he's in, um, recounting really what it's like for him to be here and to, to do the things that he's doing and all of the conflicts he runs into. So it's two very different voices, which I got used to when I wrote my first novel, which is three different narrators. And I really liked that process. It can be a little confusing at times. You have to be careful for the reader's sake not to, uh, to do anything too confusing. Um, but I enjoyed it. Yes, you can't be a, yeah, I, you're not a pantser, are you? Yeah. <laughs> you're a hybrid. You're somewhere in between. You know what, everybody's writing process is unique. You know, the one thing I forgot to mention is there's also a love story. There's a really neat love story in the book. So it's a Western spy drama love story. It's a rom-com. I, <laughs> I tried to throw it all in there. Right. Yeah, but it, it, there's a lot of texture in the story. And um, it, it, it's a book, once you start it, especially when you meet Freddie, you just can't put it down. I read it, I just read it in one afternoon, but then, you know, that's how I read anyway, but I really did, just right through. I was I listening to the audio version on the drive down here today. Oh, yeah? And the, and the narrator of the, the audio version is, a, is an actor by the name of James Babson. And I found myself totally captivated, <laughs> him reading my own story, not because it was my story, but because I was going like, oh, gosh, just like hit me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so he's really good. <laughs> well, great. I'm, I think audiobooks are wonderful, especially yeah. as you say when you're driving and other things. Oh, you know, it was, to it was have, marvelous. Yeah, to listen to something is great. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Patrick. Was there anything else? That's it. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank Kyrie for behaving herself so well. Did you all see the puppy? She has the most wonderful hairdo. It's really worth watching her. Go around. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she great? Right. So thank you all very much for spending time with us tonight. We still have a few autographed copies left, um, and I urge you to grab one while you can. So thank you for joining us. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Barbara. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.